0: A period in the middle where I thought I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I could work. I, maybe I'm better off just working for someone. Um, but once <clears throat> once I opened myself up to knowledge, I finally felt like I was ready, and and I think it made all the difference.
1: Hello, and thanks for listening to the Born and Bred Houston podcast a show about people, lessons learned, and the stories behind the businesses they built in Houston, Texas. I'm Harris Benson, and on the show today, how Jason Scheinthal went from working in a corporate role at Landry's to becoming the managing partner at the new bar and restaurant, 1836, and having to quickly adjust due to COVID-19. Think back to your days growing up in school. I bet you had at least one classmate or friend who always found themselves up to something entrepreneurial, almost as if they couldn't help it. Well, Jason was certainly that kid. From selling pens to his elementary school classmates for a quarter to opening up a concession stand in high school, business was something he always understood. Though he always felt he'd be a business owner someday, the journey is a winding road with many lessons learned along the way. Today, Jason is the managing partner of 1836. A bar and restaurant in the Upper Kirby District where community is at the forefront. Houston is home, not just for him, but for many generations before.
0: That's correct. I am a sixth generation Houstonian. So it's all my mom's side. My dad was born in New York, uh, moved to Florida, and then moved here to go to U of H Law School. Um, So my dad's actually a gator uh, for undergrad, but he did go, he became a cougar for law school. And my dad migrated his whole family here because when my dad was here, he met my mom yeah. and my mom, you know, then his parents came, his brother came to school here to go to U of H. Um, and then his other brother ended up moving to Beaumont actually, and then moved from Beaumont to Houston. But uh, it's just uh, a finishing story. So my, my mom's side, her family came in through Galveston. So when Galveston was a port of entry, yeah. uh, her family came through there uh, lived in Galveston, moved to Houston, um, and, you know, started this this long line of Houstonians.
1: So you guys came in, and basically have never left since?
0: That is correct.
1: So today, where is your extended family, or is it primarily in Houston still?
0: So on my mom's side, my extended family is mostly in Houston. Now, my cousins are are kind of have flown the coop. I have cousins in L.A., I have cousins—really, um, it's it's L.A. and Austin— um, so on, in terms of, Oh no, I guess my brother too. My brother now lives in Florida. He wouldn't like that. I, I missed him, but I, I think he's moving from Florida, but not back to Houston. Uh, I, I can't imagine living anywhere else, but on my dad's side, all my cousins are from New York, New Jersey, some, some cousins in Denver.
1: Got it. So right now, right. We're looking at today. You are the managing partner of 1836. That's why you're here. That's why I wanted you to come on. Cause I wanted to hear your story. And of course about the business, but, growing up were you always business minded like did you have a lemonade stand were you selling newspapers door to door i mean what, what was kind of your mindset growing up
0: so i mean look i i think i always saw the value of money and understood business uh when i was in elementary school i would sell pens to people for a quarter so i would always have <laughs> like a bag of pens and if someone didn't have a pen or, or something to write with I'd give them a pen or a pencil for a quarter. Um, You know, as I went into middle school, uh, I found, you know, other ways to make money. I, Embarrassingly enough, I figured out the code to uh, some of the premium channels on my parents' cable TV, Uh, and I would take blank tapes. And at that time, you could just record tapes. And I'd sell them to my friends for like 25 bucks. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Uh, Eventually, that business model didn't work because my parents got the bill for, the, uh, for all of the special TV things. Uh, and then, you know, you go into high school. I opened up my first business in high school. It was a little like concession stand. Um, you know, but I think when I when I look back at that, the only highlight there was that my investor, my mom, made all her money back. I was able to pay her back her money. Other than that, it wasn't the best business. I, I thought I knew what I was doing, but like so many people, I got in there and realized, I, it's not as easy as it seems. Um, and so those were kind of my, my young startup entrepreneurial things. But yeah. at the end of the day, I, I, I kind of had a feeling for a long time that eventually I wanted to work for myself, but I never really knew what that looked like. I mean,
1: so that's, I mean, clearly the answer to my question is absolutely yes, right? You had multiple business growing up in different phases of your young academic career, let's call it. I yeah,
0: mean, business is a loose term.
1: But who, I mean, someone in your family, someone growing up, you must have looked up to who had a similar entrepreneurial spirit. I, I don't know if many people are
0: born yeah, look, My dad is executive vice president, general counsel for Landry's. My dad uh, started working for Tillman Fertita when there were four restaurants. Okay. Um, and that's it. There were four restaurants. Right. Uh and, now today, there's almost 500 restaurants nationwide, five or six casinos, you know, a bunch of hotels. I mean, at, they, and and the, the Houston Rockets. I mean, and somebody who worked, you know, from 7 a.m. to whenever he got home, okay? Some days he got home at, at 10, some days he got home at midnight, some days he came home, you know, they have deals in China, he'd come home as I'm leaving for work. You know, it it's one of those things where we found, uh, I found he had an amazing work ethic and was able to provide such a great life for us. And my, my goal in my work, yes, is to find passion and happiness in what I do, but I don't hundred percent always think that I find that in the act of my work as much in the result of my work. Um, if I'm able to em- employ people and give them money um, and pay them a fair wage, if I'm able to give back to the community, and if I'm able to provide for my family the way my dad provided for our family. Um, and I think that's kind of pushed me to want to achieve more.
1: Got it. I mean, it's clear, right, that your path, you were on the path to entrepreneurship, to owning your own business. You just said it yourself that you knew you wanted to do something. But when, you're, when you went to college, as you were kind of growing up into more of your formidable years, was owning or being a managing partner of a bar and restaurant was that in the cards
0: you know i would say after college i i didn't know i i I think that if you asked me did i go did, did i think you know right after i graduated in 2012 did i think hey i'm gonna own a business I would have to tell you immediately after graduation, I might have. but I learned very quickly in my work life that there were a lot of things I thought I knew, and there were chips on my shoulder that I had, that until I worked for other people, I wasn't able to, to really recognize. And, and I would say that, you know, my work with Landrys, um, working for them, you know, probably you know a good chunk of my life. Um really taught me about everything i didn't know. um I went in there thinking, Hey, I grew up my whole life in this company I, I I know the ins and outs of it. I went to school for hotel and restaurant management. um why don't we do it this way why don't we do it that way? why don't we do this let's make it better and you you go in there and, and there's this mindset um you know, I think movies and t v more than anything, right tell us. That you, youngster, you need to get in there and revolutionize the company. I don't think that's true. I think the first thing you need to do is shut up for six months, maybe even a year, and really watch what's happening. Because maybe you're right. Maybe there is a better way, but you need to learn who the players are. You need to learn how to talk to them and how they listen, because everyone listens differently. And you need to learn why the way they do place so that you can have an educated conversation with them. And if the answer is that nobody knows, it's going to make when you present even better. But so many people have this mindset of, you know, oh, I know better. Oh, this is ignorant. Oh, this is stupid. Uh, and you don't learn. And so when I took this chip on my shoulder and I put it away because I had a boss who was probably the worst boss I've ever had. Um, he was the worst and best boss I ever had. He was the best boss I ever had because I learned more working for him in a very short window than I, I don't want to say more than I learned from other people, but he transformed the way I learned. He taught me that you have to be open to learning and growing in a different way and that everyone has something to teach you, even someone you don't like. And I didn't like him. He yelled at me. He was rude to me. He he made me feel stupid. But at the same time, at some point I realized, hey, he cares about his job a lot. I just need to ask him, what am I doing wrong? And suddenly we started to build a, a slightly better relationship. I at least felt like he had respect for me, still treated me like shit, but but I felt like he had respect for me. So we we eventually, you know, I eventually went and worked somewhere else or a different store, but but I learned a lot and he transformed me into someone who was able to then work with other people who were also able to teach me a lot. And I think. What's unique is I reached a point where I finally understood I could now do what I always wanted to do, which was work for myself. Um, I, there was a period in the middle where I thought, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I could work. I, maybe I'm better off just working for someone. Um, but once, <clears throat> once I opened myself up to knowledge, I finally felt like I was ready. And, and I think it made all the difference.
1: I appreciate you opening up about that because uh, I think it's also sound advice. You kind of need to, to learn the baseline before you, you start to create and implement change. Um, but it sounds to me like that lesson probably was hard learned. And you might have, it sounds to me like you, I guess you already admitted it, that you kind of came in knowing that, hey, I want to change this and that right off the bat. So someone, probably this boss, put you in your place. Is that is that the case? No, <clears throat> I don't think he put me in my place. It was a, you know,
0: when I first started out, my bosses all were very um respectful. They listened to what I had to say. They communicated with me. But at the end of the day, there was no change happening. So I would talk to them and I would share, hey, this is what I think. And 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 typically because I did it in a respectful way, um it they they listened and we had a good dialogue. But I I didn't really. I didn't really listen when they were explaining to me why they weren't doing it that way. Um, and what I mean by that isn't that I didn't hear what they were saying and think, oh, this makes sense. I didn't really listen. And what most of them were saying is, this is just the way we do it here. Yeah, That's really what they were saying. They weren't really giving me the reason other than this is why. and And it took me a while to figure that out because once I figured that out, then it was time to figure out, okay, who are the people who actually influence change and who are the people who are stuck within the system and how do you approach the people who influence change in a way that makes them listen. And look, I approached people who influence change a thousand times before they actually listened to me because I had to learn what to say and how to say it to get them to hear what I was saying. And part of that was learning about them and listening to them and their feedback
1: got it. Yeah. Take home is know your, know your audience and get a feel for how to communicate. But
0: in the, in the middle of that, I, I did hit this boss who, yeah, I thought I was working hard. I thought I was doing everything, but, but look, there's a difference between working hard and working smart. And what I found was I was killing myself working hard for someone who thought I was doing a terrible job. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop and ask myself, well, what do you do? And I have a a, a mentor boss, uh, somebody who was above my boss but he's been a mentor to me throughout my career. Um, And he came to me and he said, look, he doesn't necessarily know how to manage you because you're a unique individual, but you need to learn to communicate with him. And I said to myself, look, this guy's my boss. He's not going to take the effort to learn to hear me. So I have to take the effort to learn to hear him. Um, And so I tried to see through the things I didn't like about how he was talking to me to address the things that he wanted to see from me Um, and really step by step. I mean, I think I walked in one morning and restaurants, when you do restaurants, you shut down the restaurant at night. You have a huge procedure to get the place clean and reset for the next morning. And then the next morning you come in and you leave some notes for the night manager and, and vice versa. When you come in at night, you leave notes for the morning manager. things like that. So I had really worked hard the night before to make sure that everything was great. So I come in and I read the morning notes and I just got torn up for a horrible close. And my first reaction was, God damn it. What, what, what did I do? I worked so hard. And then I, I, I think, I finally said to myself, stop, don't don't argue, don't say I worked hard, don't be the victim, just go ask him what he means. Because his comment was, this was a great close and I got really excited and then he goes, if it was Chili's and I was like, man, that hurts. Um, no, offense to yeah, no offense to Chili's, I'm sure y'all worked really hard, But, but, you know, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, so I went over and and I started talking to him and he actually, he walked me through everything he saw that I did wrong, everything he would have liked me to do. And that night I did everything. And the next day he he complimented me for it. And, you know, we, we started to build a rapport to where I, I didn't respect him up to that point. Not really because of how he treated me. But after that point, I'm not saying he got better, but I think. I started really understanding where he was coming from. I started seeing his perspective and I started listening. So our relationship got better. And I actually have a lot of respect for him. He's a great guy. He still works for Landry's. He's worked his way up uh, to be a regional manager. And I I think he deserves it. It just, for me, I couldn't work for him because his style of leadership isn't one that, that really makes me thrive.
1: Got it. And I'll, and I'll get back to that once we kind of talk about your business. But what was your most recent role at Landry's? And at what point did you make the switch? To say, hey, I'm going to now do my own thing.
0: So my most recent role was director of delivery operations. So I coordinated delivery for all of the different restaurants throughout the country, uh, worked with our third party delivery companies, worked with the purchasing department and the IT department, and the marketing department on how do we promote both to-go sales and delivery sales? Um, how do we have the best packaging? You know, How do we build our menus most efficiently? And in a lot of ways, I still do that today in a consulting role um, where with them. But I think what it came down to was, I took a step back and, and I looked at what is my career tra- trajectory? How much am I gonna make at a cap? And what do I have to do? what do I have to sacrifice working for Landry's to achieve my goals? Um, I think Landry's a great company. I, I learned more working for them and the people there are so passionate about what they do. But I, it's a, every company has a unique culture. And one, I, didn't, I started to feel that culture didn't fit who I wanted to be and how I feel as an individual towards what I do, not in the passion of my work, but in I want to be able to make exceptions. I want to be able to bend. I want to be able to be flexible, to try new things, to be innovative. And and sometimes when you're a big company, it doesn't matter what company you are, that's a struggle. And and I felt that what I needed to do to succeed and thrive, I had hit my ceiling at Landry's. Um, Beyond that, I kind of knew that I, I, it was starting to become time for me to figure out, well, okay, if this isn't the path, what is, um, because I'm, you know, I'm 32 and I, I, you know, plenty of people start businesses when they're 40, 50, 60, whatever. But, you know, it just came to be one of those things where I, I knew that, that it was time to kind of start looking for something else.
1: Yeah. You know, opening a bar restaurant, it's, I don't know the statistics. So it's widely known as being a very, very difficult industry to to succeed in and find success in. Um, and as someone who grew up in that industry and probably knew many restaurateurs growing up, I mean, did self-doubt come into play or did you kind of just jump in, you know, two feet without hesitation?
0: So I think what so what a lot of people don't know um, is I um I actually tried to start another business before this one, um and did not was not able to and I, I think that I jumped in not not assuming it would be easier, but thinking, hey, um I thinking, hey, I, Know what I need to do, and we can take this on. And what I learned in the process of talking to investors is that there was still a lot I didn't know. I I came from an environment where I worked for somebody else and knew operationally how to run the business, but I didn't know how to be an owner. And so, in my conversations with my investors, I think that was clear. So, when that didn't work, and I had to do the next project, Project, right, that's when it kind of came down to what did I not know before that I know now, and I learned so much not succeeding in opening my first business
1: yeah.
0: that helped me when I was opening this business. Um, I went to investors twice, and the second time around, they're like, "We love this better, and we like you better now." You know, you've grown, your idea has grown; it, it's a better idea. I think that the most important thing I learned is that you probably think you know everything you need to know, but don't necessarily. And you're not going to necessarily know that in the moment. Because to your question, right, did I jump in gung-ho? Well, the answer is yes, but at the time I wouldn't have told you that. If you had asked me that at the time, are you jumping in gung-ho? I said, no, I thought this out, I thought about this, I thought about this, I thought about this. Yeah. You know. But but I learned quickly in my investor meetings. I did not think about this, this, and that. Um, and so second time around, I knew more. I was prepared um, and and more prepared. And, and and it worked out. And I think even today, I learn things every day. You know, we hired a bookkeeper six months into operations because I was doing all the bookkeeping until then. It was a way to save costs. Right. And I realized I should have hired the bookkeeper on day one, if and if only because she would have had a full familiarity of everything we were already doing. It would have been an easier transition. Six months in, I was busier than I was on day one. And yeah. so now I'm I'm training her. She's playing catch up. We're figuring things out and we probably could have afforded it. And, and it. and it was a decision that I didn't take into effect or into account how important that bookkeeper role was for my business um, and how bad I was at it. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the key aspects of leadership is, recognizing your strengths and weaknesses. And I knew this was a weakness of mine, but thought I could get by. And the truth is that just wasn't the case.
1: I mean, is there anything else that you wish you kind of lined out in the beginning that you didn't?
0: Oh man. Uh, if my investors are listening, they won't like the answers to these questions, but yeah, I mean, look, I I will tell you this. Uh, So as someone who has prepared for expansion and growth right and i I built and designed my business to be easy to grow that being said this was still my first location and so we went over budget on some repairs and maintenance because we couldn't do things exactly the way we wanted to we trusted contractors and architects who you know i don't think did a bad job at all i'm very happy with the work they did um but I think we weren't on the same page with them as much as we needed to be. Um, and, and we kind of rushed parts of the project. Um, and I think when we opened, you know, we just didn't have everything in place. I wanted to, but we had to open. Um, and, and there are just small things throughout that you're able to see, hey, I didn't really prepare for this as much. And I, I think what it comes down to is two things. One, sometimes until you go through your kind of first thing you're not going to realize what you didn't know. If I had to do this all again, I would do it differently. But in the moment again, if you had asked me, are you doing this right? My answer would have been yes. What I could have done differently and what we've designed our business to do differently for growth is we have brought in more people with experience to tell us, hey, did you think about this or have you looked at this? You know, sometimes it's annoying, right? You get this guy with gray hair who comes in. It's like, well, did you do these 10 things? And yeah, of course I did those 10 things. And so your first thought is, man, was it worth it to bring this person in? And then they say one thing, one thing that you didn't think about, one thing that completely changes your perspective or makes you realize you totally forgot about something and suddenly it's worth it. Um, and, And so I would say there's no way to not make mistakes when you're doing something new. And even when you're doing something you've done before, mistakes will happen. The best way to mitigate those mistakes is to surround yourself with good people. And today I'm surrounded with more good people than I've ever been. Um, and that, that to me is the only way to mitigate the mistakes you're gonna make. You're going to make them, they're going to happen. You're going to say, I am a, how did I not do this? And it, you didn't know, you know, but you can mitigate that with some help.
1: Did you find it difficult to delegate?
0: I found it incredibly difficult to delegate.
1: That, I feel like because um, at the beginning, right, one of the difficulties you had at Landry's was clearly it, it seems like you, right, the motions of change were very difficult. And obviously, it's a very large company. We all know that, and it's understandable that that would be the case. Um, of course, you transition to something of your own, so you could have more control. But you know, lo and behold, you you learn that you need good people around you, as you just said. Um, so tell me, like, what was that process like? About kind of, kind of giving some pieces of you away and of your of your new baby.
0: So it is hard. Um, you have to have an incredibly high level of trust, um, and 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 both in yourself and in others. Uh, there are people who I have to delegate to sometimes because I just am at capacity. Um, and, and, and know when you've delegated to someone you don't trust, it doesn't feel good. Um, or someone whose work, you don't respect. It doesn't feel good. I had to learn not the way I do it doesn't mean bad. Meaning if the result is the same, does it matter how we got there? And the answer I think is often no. Um, everyone's unique. And everyone has their own process. And if they can get there in the same amount of time it would have taken me, why do I need to micromanage them? You know, now, if I think I can add value, hey, did you think about doing it this way? Wouldn't this be more efficient? Then I might have that conversation. And and it's a growth thing. It's a coaching council or a discussion, really. Um, But at the end of the day, if I would put, you know, the cans up before I would put the, you know, bottles up, and they put the bottles up before they put the cans up, and the end result's the same, they're both where they need to be, they're both organized, they look the way they're supposed to, what's it matter? you know? And, and so that's, the, that's what I've had to, to kind of work on. I've also had to look at, you know who are the people I'm giving what tasks to? So in the beginning, there were people I thought I could trust who weren't doing things the right way, and who actually were causing more work for me because I would give them a task and they wouldn't do it right. And so again, it comes down to building that good team and surrounding yourself with good people. Um, and making sure that you're giving people the tasks that they are capable of handling. And, you know, look, some people want more. And, 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 and what's great is I have some employees will come to me and say, can I do this too? Can I be a part of this? And, and that shows me they want to grow and are open to being developed. Um, but it's still hard for me at times. I, I look at the, you know, my dad had open heart surgery. So for the first time since we opened, I quarantined. Um, like a strict quarantine, so I could be Definitely around fun. him. Uh, and I, I part of me thought this place will burn down without me. It won't exist. Will fail. And that was hubris because the place is doing fine. And I wasn't there in person. I mean, I was over the phone. I was communicative. It's not like I was out, but I was out. And 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 the truth is, it, it did fine. It thrived even. Um, you know. But I, I think that. You know it's a testament to the team that i've put in place and their dedication and their hard work and and that's what it comes down to i trust them there's there's very few people who work for me today that i don't have an incredible level of trust with
1: I mean, that's that's hugely important especially with with the newer business that you see that you just started this this past january and the space you've taken over at 2021 west alabama was formerly known as the owl bar so what was it about this space and location that made it a good fit for you in this first uh, endeavor into the bar and restaurant world?
0: So, you know, I'm an operations guy. And when you go to investors to talk about bars and restaurants, you're stuck explaining why they should invest in the highest risk business on the planet. Uh And so the owners wanted to own the real estate. They wanted to sell the land. Uh, They were, they were tired of operating it. You know, They'll tell you it was an incredibly profitable business. I'll tell you nobody sells an incredibly profitable business. Um, but at the end of the day, they, they want it out. And so we were, uh, you know, we were there ready to kind of buy the land. And what that did was it mitigated the risk for our investors because our investors thought, okay, worst case scenario, we sell the land. Um, you know we we view this as as kind of a covered plan covered covered land real estate play in that it's in a it's in a good area the land will appreciate you know there's an apartment complex next door that's kind of older and eventually you know someone will want to redevelop um, and and at that time maybe we sell our land and we you know we we kind of get out then and hopefully by then we have other projects other locations other places um, and that's kind of the mindset we took on it uh, the other thing is it had a kitchen i needed a place that had a kitchen Uh, And it had an existing customer base, which I felt was important because I knew that as a neighborhood bar slash restaurant that had an existing customer base, it would be easier to bring back a base crowd um, and then build off of that. So there were things about the existing business that was there that I thought weren't great. I went, so before we bought this place, I went there every night not in a row, but like every, I went there on a Saturday at midnight. I went there on a Saturday at, at noon or, well, they opened at three. different yeah, three.
1: Slots, you're saying. yeah,
0: and I did it every day at different slots. And it took me a year to kind of do that. Um, now, there was times we were looking at it before we bought it, and then we were negotiating with them for six months. And while we were negotiating, I would go and check it out. But bottom line being, I saw when people were going, when they weren't going, I saw when they were opening and when they weren't open, and I said, hey, is there an opportunity here? And can we do more than what they're doing? And and I thought, yes, and and that's what I liked. What I liked was there was an existing business we could build off of, people who liked going to a bar slash restaurant in that area, and now if we make
1: it better, we can grow those sales off of them. Was it difficult to bring in that existing customer base?
0: It's been difficult to keep that existing customer base, but I actually think that's okay. So we made a big change in that we don't allow smoking, uh, vaping on the patio, not vaping inside, but we don't allow smoking. And a big part of that's we're a restaurant, right? Like nobody wants you to smoke around their food, and 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 frankly, secondhand smoke is is a killer and you know if you want to smoke go to the smoking area we've got a nice smoking area we try to make it comfortable we're always open to suggestions on how to make it more comfortable and i've got no problem with people who choose to smoke that that's your choice right i mean everyone can do the things in life that, that makes them happy but secondhand smoke's one of those things that that impacts other people so we you shouldn't impose it on other people um, and so what we did was we said no smoking and that really alienated A lot of people who used to go there Um, and then the vaping only on the patio alienated some people as well Um, not to mention you know it was kind of a rowdier crowd so some of the things we've had to do is transforming into a restaurant keeping people seated you know asking them to kind of chill a little bit like that that's been a a bit of a path but i think we've started to discover our identity that was the hardest part of all this who are we are we a high-end cocktail bar are we a dive bar? Are we a neighborhood cozy bar? You know, we, we tried to be so many different things and I think we've, we've actually found this niche as we're a neighborhood uh, craft cocktail bar. So we're not the craft cocktail bar you're gonna see if you go to, um, you know, Montrose, right? But we are the craft cocktail bar you're gonna see in the neighborhood. We make very, I mean, sorry, shameless plug, we make these incredible drinks, handcrafted and designed by our mixologist, that are comparable to any of the best cocktails in Houston. I would put our top five cocktails head-to-head with the top five cocktails of any other bar, and we're just as good, if not better. Um, but at the same time, we've created an atmosphere that's comfortable enough for you to come on Sunday afternoon and just you know relax, have a beer, enjoy yourself. You know, whereas a lot of those cocktail bars are a little bit more stuffy, a little bit more, you know. So, so we found this nice mesh in the middle um, that I think our identities really started to hold. Uh, but it did take time to, to create that.
1: You know, uh, you mentioned this a couple of times. A big part of this concept is the restaurant concept. And, and I think a very interesting and a very good decision, if I might add, was bringing in Roaster Grill. I, I'm not born-raised Houstonian, but I know Roaster Grill has quite the history uh, in Houston. So tell me about the the mindset or the process of making the decision to bring them specifically on who's kind of an established name in the community.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was the easiest decision that I made. Um, we had to figure out, okay, how do we take a business and start from scratch, right? And on the alcohol side, it was a little bit easier. I knew this great mixologist. I, I was able to call him, you know, have him come down. He created this, these, these craft cocktails for us. And to, due to a fluke in timing, he was available. And I paid him to move down here and, and become our, our head mixologist. But the food side's a lot harder, right? You have to have recipes. You, you have to create a brand presence. You have to let people know your food exists. It's not that simple. And so I I really spent a lot of time thinking about how do we do food right? Um, and, and initially, you know, my thoughts were, you know, maybe I'll hire a chef. Maybe I'll just think about food that I like and find some recipes and see if we can piece something together. And it turned out that, you know, Roadster had closed down and my aunt actually recommended that I reach out to Nick. So I reached out to Nick. We had a conversation and... I found a kindred spirit in Nick and someone who understood hospitality and had a passion for what he does. Nick probably created one of the best products, I think, that exist at that price point for Greek and American food. Um, I, you know, look, everyone may have a favorite hummus and everyone may have a favorite this or a favorite that. And so there might be one or two items that we have, maybe you prefer somewhere else, right? But at the end of the day, if you look at the strength of our menu as a whole, there is no menu like ours that has as many different items that I think are served as consistently well. Um, And and that's a, a true testament to what Nick created for 13 years in Bel Air. Now, for me, I looked at that and I said, look, if I can take what you had and recreate even a piece of it and supplement that with alcohol sales, which you didn't have before, it's a no-brainer. We're going to kill it. Um, and so rather than having to go outside the box, start my own brand, spend all that money marketing, figure out a menu that maybe people wouldn't even have liked, I knew there was a menu people liked. I knew there was there was a business that people respected. And, and we leaned on that and reopening that. And actually, our plan is January, February of next year to open our second Roadster location.
1: Uh, it'll be Roadster on its own or it'll be... Yeah.
0: No, it'll be Roadster on it. So it's part of a larger project we're working on, but it'll be just a standalone Roadster grill.
1: Got it. Got it. Well, I, I will say, and, and for those listening, Jason did not tell me to, to speak on my experience at his at his restaurant and bar, but I ordered, uh, we're together in a networking group. And uh, later that day, I decided, hey, I haven't been there in quite a while, um, let's go order some food. So I ordered the Cajun burger for, uh, pickup. It was incredible. I mean, it was so damn good. So for those of you who haven't been, I mean, definitely check it out. But one thing I need to really peel the onion back on and it's kind of the elephant in the room is COVID-19. Okay. You open in January of this year, you go in with a game plan. Hey, this is how I'm going to execute this new concept. And as you've admitted a very difficult industry to be successful in and lo and behold you're chugging along and figuring out everything and COVID hits so I can't imagine what you've had to deal with over the last few months. I mean of course you can walk us through like the adjustments you've made but what I'm most curious about is have there been any silver linings throughout all this experience?
0: It's interesting you say that in that way. um, So I'll put into perspective we, our goal is to hit a point where we do 50,000 in sales a week, about 50, 60,000 in sales a week. We were on our way there. You know, we, we have, we're, we were close to 38, 40 a week and we hit COVID and we start to see it this massive decline, 35, 30, 28. And then a month where we did 10 grand a week. um, And we started asking ourselves serious questions. Like, what do we do? You know, what's, What can we do? How do we survive this? Um, We as a team had a talk and our staff came to us and we talked to our staff and we all decided we're going to work together. You know, we're not going to fire anyone. We're going to cut hours. We're not going to um, fire anyone. We're going to cut pay. We're not going to uh, stop doing what we do and close. We're going to change how we do it. And it brought us together. And the people who stayed through that and the people who worked with us through that who work with me today, we are like a family now. And that is a silver lining. More than that, it forced us to start building and leaning on revenue streams that weren't our top priority, but we're a priority. So for instance, to-go's delivery, we always said, hey, this is how we're gonna go from 40 to 50 or 60, but we can wait two months, three months. Let's get get our, our core competency down first. And now our core competency had to be that. I think in a very short period of time, our business transformed. And I think it transformed in a way that had COVID not forced us to, it would have taken almost the whole year maybe to transform into. Um, I think it made us better operators. And I think it helped us create revenue streams that when the world gets back to normal, will become supplementary, but will help us make more money. Um, And, uh, you know, all in all, it was probably the worst possible thing that could have happened and is the worst possible thing that could be going on but it also in a lot of ways has made us a better team and a stronger team because of it.
1: Yeah. And I appreciate you opening up about that because you clearly had to make you, you along with many other people in your industry, have to make very, very difficult decisions. And uh, I commend you for bringing in your team in those decisions and, uh, I think it yeah it makes sense you guys did did become closer through these tough times and uh, I have a friend who's also a restaurateur in Chicago and it's been very difficult for him but uh, he too says that you know it's made him a better operator it's forced him to look closer at his business and how they're operating their business so that when the world as you says come back comes back to normal uh, you'll probably be running things a little bit more efficiently so a couple of things that I've been poking on your website. I know you do the craft cocktail kits and things of the sort. Or those—is uh, that one of the things that you've uh, pivoted? Yeah. On? So cocktail kits were
0: definitely kind of one of our innovations. Um, you know, we 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 basically said, okay, in Texas we can deliver and carry out these 375s. You know, we'll sell those. But what else could we do with those? And so Josh, our mixologist, created instructions for how people can make some of their favorite cocktails they could have gotten at the bar. Turned into a kit, um, and over time we've transformed the presentation of those. We used to serve them in styrofoam. Now, now we we do a lot better in terms of how it looks, how the instructions are laid out, um, the ingredients we send. The idea was that we would take these craft cocktails and now bottled cocktails actually. So we have these bottled cocktails, two two per two per bottle. You just fill up your cup with glass, Your with ice. Uh, don't fill up your cup with glass. Um, you fill up your glass with ice and yeah. then you can get two cocktails out of it. And it, you know, these bottled cocktails are phenomenal. Um, and and the, you know, we said, look, let's take some of our experience and give it to people at home. Uh, and, and I think it's genius in general because, you know, look, not everyone wants to go to bars. I'm, I'm 32 years old and I get tired of going to bars, you know, uh, and, and, but I love to drink. And if I could have some friends over, we could watch Netflix and I could have some really great cocktails. That sounds like a good night to me. And so, you know, the ability for people to order in those cocktails, I think will continue Way past COVID, uh, family packs, same thing. We kind of designed those for COVID, but the truth is, they're good past COVID. You know, people like being able to order that kind of stuff, and I and I think that we'll sell them after COVID. Um, but I but I think that our our goal was to create things that help people at home. So family packs, bottled cocktails, cocktail kits. We're doing a meal subscription program in September, so we're we'll be announcing it next month. But like. We want to take over your monday you know parents have work all day monday kids are going to be at home from school or virtual school all day monday so let us drop off lunch and dinner so we'll drop off lunch and dinner every monday you know if people call and say monday's not our day can you do tuesday we'll do tuesday but the idea was to use monday as kind of the hook and the general and you know we want to help people out um you know i will say and, and this isn't to toot my horn but this is really to express to anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur there is a real importance in giving back to the community. And something that we did, we needed to rotate our food product, okay? It was very important that we, with sales being down, that we rotated our food product. You have to order a certain amount of time. You can't order a half a case, right? And at the same time, we saw what was going on in the city, people losing jobs, people struggling. And we made an effort, you know, throughout all of COVID, um, and still today people ask, Someone comes in and says, I need 50% off my food. As long as they're taking it to go, we give it to them. If people, every Wednesday, we were giving away 20 family packs for free. Just wow. the first 20 people who showed up, we were just giving it to them. And the general idea was, look, it helped us rotate the product. So there was a practical reason why we did it. Um, we were going to throw it away anyway if we didn't rotate it. Not that it was bad product, but it could have become bad product. Right. And at the end of the day, it let us give back to people. Um, we found every opportunity we could through COVID to give back to the community. And it was tough because we are a um, growing business and, and you can't just give away money. And and that was never our intent, but our plan was to do everything we could. I mean, we donated, I think it was something like 500 meals to the Houston Police Officers Association. Um, and and, and, and our, our goal, when this is all said and done, is truly just to make sure that We are conscientious capitalists. I am a capitalist. Okay. I want to be a multimillionaire. And if I'm a billionaire, God, that would be great. But at the end of the day, I don't want to do that and forget society and forget the world and forget people because the biggest part of working for myself has always been that I wanted to be the kind of boss that I've always wanted to work for. And I wanna be the type of person that I always envisioned You know, wealthier people should be. And those are people who give back. Um, it's just so important, especially when you're in a, from a city like Houston. I mean, let's be honest, this is a city with so much wealth, yet at the same time, there are so many people who are struggling and we could do such a better job at helping each other out and being there for each other. Um, and and. I think sometimes we do a great job, and and I love Houston. Don't get me wrong. I will never live anywhere else. I mean, someone offers me a million dollars, maybe, but with <laughs> the exception of that, I, I I have no intent of living somewhere else. Uh, and you know, I, I think patriotism and pride in your city is not believing it's perfect. It's recognizing that it has the potential to be perfect, and 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 then helping it get there every step of the way. And, and I, I just love the city of Houston and, and I, I love every opportunity I've had to give back. And I, I say that only because I encourage you know, business owners in Houston or people thinking about starting their business, remember two things, your employees are the backbone of your business. Don't have your success on their failures or detriment. Don't pay them less so you can make more. Do a better job as an operator and make more. Um, you know, take care of them when they have issues. Because they will take care of you. And two, you know, don't forget that your community supports you if you support them. Um, and, and be an active member and support your community. I think those are the two biggest pieces of advice that nobody gives entrepreneurs. Uh, they tell them, oh, be smart about how you spend your money, check your balance sheet, you know, all these different things. But so many people just forget the core value of taking care of your people and your community.
1: I mean, clearly, this is a topic you're very passionate about. It's on your website. We've had previous conversations, and I can I can hear in your voice, right? Um, I mean, where did you get this inspiration to be philanthropic? Like, how did that be like come to the forefront of your mind? Um, and it's clearly a part of the structure of your business as a conscientious capitalist.
0: So I would say there's there's two sources of this, and the first is if I got any drive for business from my dad, both my mom and dad have always been people who give back. My dad helped support my whole family at different points in his life. My my mom has the biggest heart of anyone I know and cares about everyone and, and, and can have a conversation with the random person. And I think that's where it started. And then taking that and seeing that, I, I went to Emory High School and we spent a lot of time at Emory talking about tikkun olam, repairing the world and our place in it, and understanding who we were, you know, in a broader world. You know, I don't believe that most racists are racist. I believe that most racists and anti-Semites are ignorant. And and I don't say that rudely. I'm not insulting them. I kind of am. But I'm not, not, not trying to, as much as I'm trying to say, they're not educated. They never met a Jew. They never met a black person. They've never gotten to know one. You know, they they just have these assumptions. I can't tell you how many people when I first started working for Landry's, um, you know, they, oh, you're Jewish? Where's your gold? Oh, you're Jewish? What about this? What about that? And 90% of the conversations I first had with people for some reason revolved around the fact that I was Jewish and how like weird this was because they've only met like two Jews, right? And so my point in saying that is what I learned was not everyone has a full picture of the world. And once you got that full picture and you realize people are just like me, everyone is just like me. They have the exact same concerns as me. Do I have a place to sleep? Do I have food to eat? Can I take care of my family? These are the top three concerns of almost everyone. Okay. Yes. There's a few people who don't see the world that way. That's fine. They are not the majority. And so When you accept that and see that, you realize we all have a place in this world. And part of our place in this world is supporting each other and giving each other the opportunity to succeed and thrive. Um, There are restaurants who don't pay people a living wage. And I'm not claiming that I'm perfect. I, I have to do what makes sense for my business. But I do the best I can to try to get my people there or close to it.
1: Yeah, you must be pretty close with your, with your, with your employees. I mean, it's, uh, I wish there were a lot more business owners who thought, who thought this way. And uh, I imagine it's very difficult to, right? Because as you said, you need to think about the business. And of course, you know that the community supports the business. Um, so there's that like fine line to walk, walk down on. I want to take a step back uh, to COVID. Um, and you alluded to this a little bit. I mean, what are some of the other ways that you think the industry that you're in will change moving forward? So
0: look, I, I think that there's a few things that will change. One is delivery and to aren't going anywhere. The COVID spike is a false spike. But the truth is that we saw a growth in delivery and to-go sales pre-COVID. The, the industry was trending that way. And the reason it was growing is the market share was growing. So it's not that customers who were ordering were ordering more. It's that new people were ordering more. What COVID did is it closed the circle. There, there's probably very few people today that don't know what DoorDash is, that don't know what Grubhub is, that don't know what all their options are. And, and so what's going to happen is you're going to have this drop. Sure, the COVID high will be gone. but you're going to be in this new marketplace that has so many new customers looking to still experience to go and delivery. You've also got people who are realizing how much money they save not going to the bar all the time, We're realizing they can have fun staying at home, watching Netflix and having dinner who can do a sellers of Catan night and have fun at their place. Right. Mm. And I think you're going to see more of that. I think you're going to see people you're going to have as much as COVID is a false high for to go and delivery. Post COVID, you're going to see a false high for people going out and going to restaurants, going on vacation. Okay. Then the world will balance. And you're going to see a far more balanced world with a blend between carry-out and to go sales and dine-in sales. You're going to see these these shift and changes and offerings to people still offering cocktail kits, still offering these these various avenues for supplemental revenue. Um, Now, I also think that you're going to see a slow return because of COVID. So let's just say January, they announced there's a vaccine. Well, the news has done too good of a job informing people that if they did a vaccine that fast, it may have bypassed some safety standards. And so you see these polls of people who are like, I won't take the first iteration, I'm gonna wait, you know, whatever. Those people are gonna stay home for a while. And 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 it'll hurt, especially in rural communities or, or areas where people are more, uh, less trusting. Uh, you're going to see a lot of issues with people going out to those restaurants. But I, I think at the end of the day, COVID's effect hopefully will be temporary. But what does temporary mean is the question. Is it two years, is it three years, is it four years, or five years? But the long-term impact is going to be a growth in delivery and to-go sales. And it's going to be several states staying lax on alcohol delivery and to-go. Um, they just won't go backwards. States love tax revenue. Uh, there, there's not been a massive spike in suddenly deaths because we've offered these things. Uh, and so I think that's gonna be a, a real big thought on the state's part, which is, hey, why do we say, why would we say no to this now? There's not a spike in drunk driving. There's not a massive round of deaths because of this. And we're getting more tax money. Let's do it. Uh, and I think that'll be a big shift as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, as you alluded to earlier, COVID is almost forcing the inevitable to happen sooner. So these are probably things that were going to happen. But because of this, it's forced us to make that our our new reality. And it's likely not going away. Um, Back to just like general things about your business. So uh, the name of it is 1836. Can you walk us through why that name, the historical significance around it, and maybe some more personal connection to 1836?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So naming your business is as difficult as naming a baby, okay? We had massive challenges. I cannot tell you the number of names that we went through before we landed on 1836. I was having lunch with a friend of mine, Ben Rose, and look, I will tell you that I knew from the beginning the name had to mean something to me. It had to resonate and it had to be personal. So I'm talking to Ben and Ben, who's an investor and, and, a, and a good friend and advisor, you know, he said, man, why don't you call it Houston 1836? And I was like, huh. Now side note here, my parents were moving during this time and my parents lived and they're at 5418. That was their address. So we were having these garage sales. This Asian gentleman came to the garage sale and he looked at my parents' house. He said, they're moving. I said, yeah, he says the house for sale. I said, well, they were leasing, but I'm, I, I believe it's for sale. Yeah, you can ask the owner. He goes, I need to talk to her. Said, can you get me in touch right now? I'm like, okay. And, you know, we got him in touch and, and I just was curious. I was like, why did you need to get in touch with her? He goes, because the address, it's 5418. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, five and four is nine and one and eight is nine. Is very lucky. It's very lucky. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Very lucky. You know, so the, you know, I mean, listening to Ben, he's talking about 1836. And I'm like, wait, 1836. Okay, let's start with that. Nine and nine. This is lucky. Okay, let's (laughs) let's have a conversation. So then I'm like, Houston, 1836. Well, I want this bar to feel like home. I want this restaurant to feel like home. I've always wanted that. That was a goal of mine. I have for years entertained people at my home and, and love bringing people in. This is my goal. And I'm a sixth generation Houstonian. I love this because 1836 is the year Houston was founded by the Allen brothers. Right. So I'm, I'm cool with that. And then I realized that in Judaism, 18 means life and 36 double life. And I'm like high and double high, lucky in Asian culture, sixth generation Houstonian. I love it, but I didn't love the Houston part. So we just called it 1836. Um, I thought it sounded a little sexier as 1836 versus yeah. Houston 1836.
1: Great. Yeah. great. Okay. So uh, now I want to go through a few rapid fire questions. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. So the first one's related to what I just asked. So if not 1836, what was it going to be? Give me a few of those names.
0: Uh Park Place, um, man, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Park Place was one we were stuck on for a while. Yeah. Um, it was a whole list. I don't That's even okay. know. Okay,
1: Park Place. Okay, Park so Place. favorite favorite neighborhood in Houston.
0: Ooh, uh, Favorite neighborhood in Houston, uh, Upper Kirby District? Or is that cheating? Uh, uh, I would say like – Where do you like to hang
1: out? I mean, it doesn't need to be where your restaurant is.
0: Oh, no, no. I like, I mean, honestly, Greenway Plaza area. I I like to hang out in your home.
1: Cool, cool. So where do you find inspiration?
0: The people I work with um, and my dad.
1: Got it. And And you went through this a little bit. So what's, give me one piece of advice you can pass on to an aspiring entrepreneur, regardless of industry.
0: Your failures are just as valuable as your successes um, and the people around you are incredibly important, uh, don't settle.
1: Got it. Okay. So here's the time where you can give your shameless plug. Okay. It's important to give yourself a pat on the back, um, before plugging the restaurant. I want you to just tell me something that you're just extremely proud of yourself on in regards to 1836 and and from the start to where you're at now.
0: I am, incredibly impressed by our consistency of product um i think when we started there were drinks i would order and food i was ordered that didn't taste the same both times um naturally you're training cooks you've got different people different shifts right. but i think today we have a 99.9 consistency rate and that is a very challenging thing to achieve
1: Okay, so shameless plug time. So tell us, you know, where to find you, what we can expect at your bar and restaurant, and how we, the community, can support you.
0: All right. Well, I'm located on West Alabama between Kirby and Greenbrier. I'm open at 11 a.m. every day, except on Saturday and Sunday when I open at 10 a.m. for brunch. Uh, I am a, uh, you know, we're open till midnight, Sunday through Wednesday, 1 a.m. Thursday, 2 a.m. Friday and Saturday. I will tell you that you can get some of the best food and drinks in Houston. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable going out yet, go to bar1836.com, order from the Roadster Grill menu. Uh, we'd love to send you some food, let you taste it, order a cocktail kit or a bottle cocktail. We'll get that to you. Um, I, I think that we offer a unique product in Houston. Um, you know, I don't think you're going to get food like ours at that, at that price point. Um, We have cocktail classes, mixology classes that our mixologist Josh uh, Sapphire teaches. And uh, we also do catering if you reach out and need us to do catering, though I'm sure that that's going to be a while before it grows. Um, I will tell you, too, that if you want to help us out, you know, place a sale online, you know, buy a gift card, you know, order to go in delivery, um, you know, or stop by and visit us. And our brunch is phenomenal. If You haven't had our brunch and you're going out comfortable brunch. If you're ordering in, I've ordered it in a few times. Other people have, it, it travels pretty well. Our brunch is phenomenal, but just, just order, um, you know, be a customer, give us a shot. That's all I can ever really ask of anyone is give us a shot. And then maybe a second chance if you don't like it the first time, but, uh, but that's all I can. I'm sure, really they'll, ask.
1: Like it. I'm sure they'll like it the first time. Like I said, it, it, Jason does a great job. His team is amazing. And they're doing, I know we, he didn't speak too much on it not ask him, but They're also taking uh, safety precautions very seriously. So if you are the type to go out and about, I know that they're doing anything and everything to make sure that people are safe. Well, Jason, I'd like to thank you for joining the Born and Bred Houston podcast, and I really look forward to seeing your continued success. So thank you so much for joining. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Born and Bred Houston podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Before moving on to more amazing podcasts that are out in this world, please do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so more people can find us. Thanks again, and see you next time.